Any, any quick questions? Uh, take about five or ten minutes for questions, just for clarification. Then we're going to look at the case study and just walk through it together. Yes, ma'am. It's primarily you understanding what God is up to in suffering. And, right, and, and that, that helps you as you walk with another person. But it's what does the Bible teach about suffering? And um, we've got to have a theology of suffering. If we don't, we're going to be duped because we live in a very broken world. And we live in broken bodies. And we have hearts that defect and worship and love all kinds of things other than the true and living God. Feel free to ask any question, clarification, press a point, disagree with me. Yes, ma'am. Where in the book did you say there was a chapter about suffering? Uh, I think it's called uh, Truths That Will Help You. Real Truths. Real tr- yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my editor didn't want me to have suffering and your worry. This is where they do the marketing kind of stuff, right? We want to keep people reading. So, but uh, I think it's, you know, I think it's a helpful piece to factor in. Excuse me? I will in just a moment. I'm, yeah, I, want, I just want to get folks talking. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah, if, if someone is so debilitated, probably talking about roots and fruit isn't where you want to start. You want to, you want to figure out how, how deep this debilitation is, how long it's been going on. Maybe there are mitigating factors that we want to address first. Um, uh, maybe, there is, uh, maybe there's a, a redemptive place for uh, how medication can help this person temporarily and, and begin to get to a place where they can start to talk more openly and honestly about what they're struggling with. But I, I, don't, I don't talk about um, uh, roots and fruit until I ground it in all these, you know, gospel promises. Yeah. So this is a tough environment to be in with, you know, I would let y'all break, but I'm afraid you just collide into one another in this mad rush for the restroom. Yes. Excuse me? I don't uh, address boundaries in this book, no. Um, Tell me a little bit about what you mean. So you're in a relationship with with someone who is deeply anxious? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, I would say um, I would say clarity and honesty up front, and then consistency. Um, you know, and depending on the nature of the relationship, if it's a if it's a counselee, you have a little bit more control. If it's a spouse, not so much, right? If it's uh, a family member, you know, the closer they are in terms of their covenantal connection with you, the less control you have. Now, if it's a brother and they live in California and you're in Atlanta, you know, so all of those factors matter. But let's say you're in close proximity. I think, I think honest, loving conversations about how you're going to approach the relationship with them and saying, look, I love you, I'm committed to this relationship, but we can't keep doing this relationship like this. And when you're ready, I'm here, I'm ready to, to do the relationship right. But until then, you know, we're going to have to establish some, some priorities. And, and I would say, I don't want to get too technical, rather than using the, the term boundaries, I would, just, I would just think of that as loving someone wisely. That has more of a, a positive moving towards them rather than kind of a self-protective, I've got to keep you from messing with me. And I don't think that's what the people that use the language of boundaries mean, but it, it can connote that. It sounds a little more negative. But um, for those of us who have had the experience of, you know, a lack of careful attention to those things, uh, you appreciate that that word. But no, that's that, that would be something I would say. I'm trying to think if there's some... Um, there's, a, there's actually some good stuff in a book uh, by Dan Allender called Bold Love, where he talks about, um, it's, it's in his chapter, um, he has loving the fool, loving the evil person, and I think it may be loving the fool or loving the evil person, and there's actually uh, a conversation that, that he recounts of a daughter in, in relationship to her father, and she has that honest conversation with him. So, clarity, consistency. Um, this becomes an issue, particularly in the church, where, you know, you don't have those formal professional, you know, uh, boundaries, and so you have to think wisely about those things. Yes? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm just saying this is what is offered people in general. Um, but uh, um, meditation, stopping. The the way that I might cast that is thinking more in terms of how the Bible talks about Sabbath. And I not only need weekly Sabbath, I need daily Sabbath. And so, how do I find time away? To not empty my mind and kind of connect myself with the impersonal other, right? Like the drop, of, the drop of water in the ocean, but how do I fill my mind with God's truth and do more than just keep it in here, actually enable that for me to relate more intelligently with God. So, um, yeah, those, those Eastern exercises can sometimes, you know, make us nervous, but there, there's a a rich tradition in the Christian faith of, of meditation. It's just a, a different way of medita- meditating. Now, there's also, and I don't know much about this personally, but there's also a contemplative tradition in the Christian church, uh, centering prayer, listening. Um, and I have friends that, 
that benefit greatly from that. Um, but uh, the key is you want to you want to talk to God, and you want to you want to build into your life times when you're doing that Sabbaths. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, if you're if you're working with someone that and and you know that that has more of a, a deep struggle, they're suffering greatly. Um, I would say what you need to do is you probably ought to start researching: Are there people? In this church, are there people in this community that have case wisdom, experience, and knowledge and insight into helping people who are struggling with, with the you know, more pathological experiences with anxiety and worry and be prepared and be able to say, hey, I'm, I'm willing to walk with you at a certain level, but I'm not sure that, that, that I, I know how to best help you. And, and that's not because you're a freak. It's just because I... Yeah, and you really you don't want people to feel like freaks when they're struggling, right? That, the shame that comes with that. But I'm here for you, and I think there may be somebody else that can can partner with you and help you along with me. Um, and they may be in the local church. They may be, you know, an a, a external resource in the community. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. What? What? What layer in those concentric circles is medication addressing? The brain. Yeah. And by the way, um, I don't know who referred to. I mean, modern psychiatry is like in its infancy in knowing what is actually going on up here and what what these drugs that we're putting into our bodies does and and doesn't do. And uh, a lot of times people also talk about uh, diet and exercise. Those things are equally important. We put so many toxins in our body in America, you know. Um, my daughter went to southern France for about four or five months, and she's uh, eating fresh foods every day. And then she comes back to the States, and it's like, ugh, what are we doing to ourselves here, right? Um, so that's an aspect as well that's, that's addressing uh, physiological realities. But I would say that um, I don't like to see people suffer. And so if, if there is something that can help them, and, and it is so debilitating that this will help, then I'm all for that. But I, but I want to also help them understand that, hey, here, here's who you are as a complex person, and, and this is addressing this one area, and, and as, as much as that might be helpful, um, and, and I, don't, I don't know how I'd actually word it to someone, but you know, we, are, we have a higher vision for them than just symptom relief. I, I'm, I'm all for alleviating suffering, but I don't want to to just do symptom relief and not call them to faith and obedience in the midst of their struggle. And that's a delicate thing to do with someone who's deeply despairing. You've got to be very careful with someone. 
Um, the last thing I do is, you know, just kind of out of nowhere, being in, you know, non-medical, no training in psychiatry, say, you need to go off your medication and do it today, right? You need to say, is it being monitored? Who are you talking to about it? Uh, tell me how that's helping you. What changes have you seen? Have you seen side effects that aren't necessarily positive? Um, uh, but when someone is on medication, basically what it's saying to you is this, they are suffering. That's what it says, all right? And the last thing we want to do is, the last thing we want to do is shame them and say, well, if your faith were greater, you know, the thing we want to do is say, if that's helping you, great. And, and how, can, how can you continue to move in a direction of growing in grace? in Christ and being conformed in, into his likeness. And you may need the medication for a while. You may not. Uh, there are certain uh, brain dysfunctions that oftentimes mean that someone's going to be on medication probably forever. Bipolar is one of them and schizophrenia. Um, people come off of their medication and it's, it's highly problematic. Yes? I'm sorry? Um, I don't think there are there any in the bookstore, but the bookstore is not open tonight. Okay, if you're not here tomorrow, Amazon.com, the Good Book Company, uh, the publisher, they have a office in the states and they distribute. They're they're really great. Uh, either one of those would be the place to get it. That's a really good question, by the way. <laughs> I I feel less anxious with that question. I can answer that one. That's right. One of, the, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is I'm trying to say here, here is, if you will, the distinctive Christian resource that we bring to the struggle. And it is something that you won't find in any other therapy. There may be great techniques and skills and things of that nature that you'll find in the other therapies, but you will not find a redeeming, personal, loving, gracious God that meets the struggler in the midst of their struggle. And so that's really the, the vision I'm casting. Uh, I'm not trying to minimize the, the, the multi-layeredness of the struggle. Um, let me say something about cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, uh, CBT, um, a lot of Christians use it, and they probably you know, Christianize it in a good way. But here, here's what cognitive behavioral therapy is. You, you replace bad thoughts with... Uh, right thoughts, right? You, you, uh, you have an activating event, and there are behaviors that grew out of beliefs that then now produce consequences, and you've got to have an argument with yourself about your beliefs to determine whether or not that really is accurate in terms of how you acted in the moment, and as you're having a debate in your own head, you're, you're rethinking and, and uh, reassessing your, your behavior based on those beliefs and, and changing your beliefs, changing your thinking. Now, you can see how that would be very attractive to Christians. And actually, it, you know, at one level, if you look at many therapies out there, CBT is a very sane therapy. Um, the problem is it, it just says that we're, you know, we, we just do cognition. Well, we're much more complex than our cognition. You know, our, uh, Freud was probably onto something in terms of subconscious or unconscious. There are deep things going on in the heart. 
Now, Freud took it in a really weird direction and the Oedipus complex and all that stuff. But um, here's what happens. CBT, in and of itself, in its secular form, and, and we can actually do the same thing in Christian form, is it's you having an argument and a conversation with yourself. Okay? Uh, that was wrong thinking, wrong beliefs. I need to change that thinking. I need to change those beliefs. Here are the Bible verses that I need to insert, and here's the bad stuff that needs to get out. And what happens is you just stay in your own head. And when I talk about change, and I actually have a section in the, the book um, where I kind of am softly challenging CBT. I don't want to diss it because I'm not, you know, this antagonistic jerk that thinks everything and everyone is wrong. But um, we've got to get out of our heads, our own heads. And we've got to talk to somebody besides ourselves. And that person is God. And so I talk about the change process. It's not less than cognitive, it's more. It's not less than behavioral, it's more. It's covenantal. And covenantal is just a fancy word in the Bible that means relationship. What is the Bible? What is prayer? What is Christian fellowship and encouragement? The sacraments, good preaching, teaching. What is all of that designed to do? What do we call them? We call all of those things means of grace. They're not ends of grace. They're means of grace. They're means whereby they get us talking and relating to our God who in the context of that relationship is changing us and working in us. Um, so um, this, this vertical piece is the piece that I'm inserting into the equation when I, when I talk about CBT. Yes. You know, I'm not a pediatrician. Uh, I'm not a psychiatrist. I, I would say, you know, if there's deep emotional dysregulation in a young child, there's probably what most people will say is there's probably a combination of some genetic and environmental factor going on. In fact, that's, that's what they say about schizophrenia. It's some genetic predisposition and some environmental factor. And uh, so it may be that uh, this young child has something that is more systemic and it, it will need to be addressed by a wise pediatrician or a psychiatrist, but that still doesn't mean that that child can't be, you know, an active, growing believer in Jesus. It's, it's going to be an area where there's going to be more intense struggle, but, but the struggle is not without hope. Yeah, it's, it, it is challenging. I mean, I think the, the general trajectory is encouragement and how can I pray for you and you know, how are you doing? And if, if they kind of, kind of spill on you their, their anxieties and fears, uh, you listen. You know, sometimes the best thing we can do for people is listen to them. And I don't like to listen. I love what's going on here tonight. You know, I wish I could do this at home. You know, that's the one place I don't get away with it. Um, 
But listening is a redemptive, a very powerful redemptive thing that you can do with people and not trying to explain them or not trying to find their idol or, you know, there, there's a place for that. There's a place to help people evaluate and think. But, but at the, at the, on the, in the early stages, it's listening, it's encouragement, it's prayer, walking with them. Uh, we err on that side. And um, let's get to the case study. But I would say as you build relational equity with someone, you begin to earn the right to say, hey, can, can we talk about something? You know, I've been walking with you over the past several months and been so encouraged by what, what, what's going on in your life. I mean, with all that you've been through and all that you're struggling with, you're still coming to church, you're struggling to read your Bible, but you're struggling. Um, you, haven't, you haven't forsaken God. Um, there's so many good things that are going on, and I'm, I'm so encouraged about that. And yet I see this abiding kind of struggle. Can, are, you, are you comfortable talking to me about that? And you may get, you know, I'm not really ready to go there. So okay. Um, or, you know, you, you have really been there for me, and I need to talk about these things, but I've never been able to because no one's ever given me the kind of encouragement, and no one's ever listened to me the way you have. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, some, some sins and struggles. And, and I, I do need to put some things on the table. Um, I've, 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 uh, so, 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 like, my, my trip to the U.K., so is worry a sin? Let me, let me share this, and then we'll look at the case study. We've got time. Um, is, is worry a sin? I just don't like that question because it's kind of a it's kind of a yes and no. Okay, so let's let's think about my trip to the UK. Um, I'm getting ready to go to the UK, and I'm anxious, and I'm struggling with worry. Um, my back goes out. Now I didn't finish telling you the story. I was able to call my my primary care physician. And this guy just happened to be in the office that day. He's a, a, a retired surgeon. I walk in, and he says, oh, I can help you. I can give you a shot in the back. Well, he didn't know that shot in the back didn't encourage me. <laughs> um, and he said, I'll start with the small needle, and then I'll go with the big one. My wife is sitting there, and she's like, oh, no. But um, he, he numbed the, my lower back, and... Uh, he said, if I put saline in there, it would do the same thing. But he put something else in there. He didn't tell me what. He said, this will have a more lasting effect. But as soon as that, and I didn't know it at the time, he stuck that needle in five different times. And I felt it once, and he must have, like, hit right on the place where it was tight. And uh, within, within five minutes, I was starting to, to stretch my back. And thankfully, was able to get on the plane. And I only think I took one or two hydrocodones and... You know, maybe a Flexeril or two. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm scared of those kinds of narcotics, but I will take them uh, if I need them. Uh, so let me, let me break down that experience. So you, you might could argue, and, and this is me, so I can do this, right? You, you might could argue that my, my stressing out and being anxious about the trip at some level is understandable, but, but there may be an element where I am, you know, worried about what people are going to think of me. 
and there is this over-concern. And this is where it's, it's, a, it's a, a struggle with idolatry and, and sin, okay? And I, I think that was probably true. And I look back on it, and I was, I was deeply anxious about whether or not I was prepared to do this. Three, I was in the U.K. for three weeks. Um, loved it once I got there, but the thought of it, you know, was, was anxiety-producing. So I think you might be able to argue at that level there was some of that going on. Um, there was over-concern. And, and then what happened is it kicked in and it began to express itself in my body. Now we're in another category. We're in a category of suffering. Um, and now my, my body is, is experiencing pain. And I, you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but my back goes out. I know that if I turn in one direction wrong, I'm on the floor. I mean, I've had to have the ER come and get me before. That's how bad it is. And so... I'm starting to get anxious about that. Now, what's that? That's suffering. That's pain. I get to the doctor, and my wife is there. And, um, you know, I'm thinking, look, is there a shot you can give me? I don't like it, but I'll take it. A shot and being feeling better right away so I can, I can make the trip is better than anything else I've ever experienced in the, the time it's taken to recover. But I'm suffering, and he starts talking about shots and big needles and little needles. And there's, you know, my anxiety goes up. And then he's sticking the needle in my back, and my, my body is getting clammy. My wife is staying there with her hand on me, and I'm getting pale. What's happening? That, that's deep suffering, right? Now, it, it, it may not be suffering at the level of what some other people have experienced in their lives, but there's suffering there. And so this is a place where my wife was there. She wasn't castigating me. What's wrong with you, you, you silly man? You know, <laughs> it's just the needle. And my wife, you know, my wife's been through more, way more than I've ever been through when it comes to delivering kids and needles and all that stuff, you know. But she didn't castigate me and say, you know, you ought to just be like me. No, she, was, she had her hand on my back, and she was just, she was just encouraging me, right? Um, and there, there's something that is to be said for human touch with fearful people. Deeply, deeply helpful and soothing. Now, I know you have to be careful, you know, with all that. But um, so... So we're, we're looking at kind of a nuanced continuum, aren't we? When we think about is, is worry and anxiety a sin, Jesus is commanding us not to worry, but it's within the context of this deep commitment to us, encouragement. But, but we are, at some level, trying to live in two kingdoms. And that's not good. That's called, you know, covenantal unfaithfulness. It's, it's called sinful... Uh, uh, pining after allegiances and loyalties that are not the true and living God, and, and I, I need to grow. So, you know, out of that experience, what might I conclude? You know what? I, I really need to be more vigilant and prayerful when I'm preparing for a, a, a big event or travel. I, I did the same thing coming here, you know? Um, I was telling my wife, you know, Sunday, and I'm thinking, all right, am I ready? And I could feel myself getting agitated, manic, you know, in the car. She's like, <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, but, but there's a place where I need to grow in grace, and I need to say, all right, I need to know God's commitment to me in the midst of all this and that he's with me. Um, 
Thankfully, it didn't turn into a, a you know, tightening of my muscles. But you see, see how I'm trying to capture the, the range of the experience of anxiety and where you, you want to factor in, you know, false allegiances and loyalties, but you also want to uh, incorporate that in with the experience of suffering. Okay, let, let's do this. Two things. Um, you've got a case study in front of you, and it's Celia. And then you've got the Institute for Pastoral Care card. Here's the deal. If you want to get an, my e-news or if you're interested in being on the mailing list, fill that card out and, and just pass them down to the front. Even if you don't fill it out, pass them all back so I can get them back. And we'll collect them in about five minutes. Uh, but here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to read the case study and look at the categories that I've given you. Um, where are we? I'm getting lost in these. Here we are. Case study. How can you help? All right. Number one, I want you to read this case study and I want you to consider what might be my temptation as I think about helping Celia. And it could be, I might be judgmental. I might not be whatever. Uh, what, what are your own personal proclivities that would lead you to not be helpful to her? Your own, your own temptations as, as she enters into your life. And there's Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Be careful, those of you who are going, going to restore another person, that you do it gently and take heed lest you fall. Right? So there's this humility. So how might your humility be threatened and how might you not be helpful to, to uh, uh, Celia? Secondly, begin to build a bridge. All right? This may not be a great metaphor. It's a mechanical metaphor for a relational thing, but um, build a bridge. How do you build a bridge? How do, you, how do you care for Celia in such a way that you're building relational equity with her? You're building trust. What would that look like practically? And then cross the bridge. Go across this bridge and meet Celia in her shoes, in her skin. And I, I talk about this in terms of going cross-cultural. Every single, if, if you're going to go on a missionary trip, what are you going to do? You're going to study the continent, the, the values and the customs of that culture just think of Cecilia and every other person in your life as an unknown continent. Go cross-cultural. How will you get to know Celia and the dynamics of her struggle and the experience of her struggle? Okay? Um, a lot of this is, is asking questions and loving Cecilia. And then... Uh, Walk, start to walk back across the bridge with your friend. All right, you've built a bridge, you've built trust, you've gotten to know them, and they're willing to walk with you across that bridge. And then what might you talk about with your friend while you're walking together? What kind of conversations, gospel conversations, are you going to have with Celia as you help her grow in grace in, uh, in this struggle with anxiety. And then the final thing is, what other resources are available 
to me to help Celia because I can't do it alone and there's a bigger, broader body of Christ that has resources that are greater than mine and the sum is greater than, than me, right? So what other resources might there be available to me to help Cecilia? So, so that's just getting at kind of the movement of, of wise and helpful and loving and gracious ministry. Watch yourself, start to build a bridge, build trust, then go cross-cultural, enter into Celia's world, get to know her, begin to walk with her back across the bridge and talk with her while you walk together. Got 1 Corinthians 5.14 there. And then think of resources that are available to further help, help your friend. Um, take five or ten minutes just writing some notes, and, um, and then what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to pair up with someone right next to you and just share with one another um, some of your answers, and then we'll do that together before we end at 9 o'clock, okay? So I want to try to give you some practical things to help you think about very, very organic, personal, helpful ministry.